Hey everybody, just a quick word before we start. Uh, Today we're kicking off a new series on racial reconciliation. These conversations are critical and at times they may be heavy. Uh, We're going to address some things that may be uncomfortable and that's okay. We need to address them in order to be all that God has called us to be. This episode is long, but we hope you'll take the time to listen and wrestle with the ideas shared because it's going to set the tone for where we're headed this month. We really appreciate you guys being a part of the conversation. Welcome to Good Christian People, an honest conversation between church leaders who recognize we're not perfect, we're barely good, but we want to be great. On today's episode, I prove I know nothing about baseball, and we sit down with the El Cuñado himself, Dr. Adam Alvarez, to kick off a much-needed series on racism and the church. Everybody, welcome back to Good Christian People, the podcast, episode twenty-five. Fünfundzwanzig. Did you have to think of that, or did you look it up? I had to think of it. Yeah. What number do you like know up to in German? I can't say because it's like, can you count in English? I mean, yeah, but I mean, then you can probably I'm count in sorry German. That I started this tradition, <laughs> by the way. I mean, I'm no. I went up to nine or ten, and then you guys have taken you over. You went up to eleven. You did uno uno. Yeah, ten years from now, he'll be saying two thousand four hundred and seventy three in how, German. And how many years from now? I don't know. You think we'll be still going on that? So you think you'll think doing? we'll have that many podcasts? In that's two what years. I'm saying. Yeah, is it, guys? I'm Jeff. That's Tim. Across from me is Josie, and we are joined in studio. I am so excited about this. The original. El Cuñado, Adam Alvarez. Hey, you What's can't up? hear the applause, but I'm sure there's some somewhere. There's some. I mean, there are people who are screaming in their cars. And so Adam and is I your know. brother-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. But until this day, I heard. And how long have you guys known each other? How long have you been married to a sister? Too long. A while. Yeah. Was it and 2012? So, uh, 13. 13. 13. And before Good. that, you guys were dating for 14 a year. Years. year. Okay. Yeah. All right. So say eight years. And today, you actually learned his first name. Yeah. <laughs> so his first name is really Adan or Adan. Adan. You keep changing it like you introduced. <laughs> well, think about the TH in the. Yeah. Adan. Adan. Yeah. Adan. It's not Than. Than. No. Adan. Yeah. So the way this came out is Adam emailed me and uh, you know how Gmail will give the name of the person sending it. And it says Alvarez comma Adan. And I'm like, well, Adam, your, your name is Adan. Adam and uh, did you know that like do you need to fix that in your community and you told us that your real name is Adon right right and I leave it that way because uh, a lot of folks will will ask is that a typo and I'll say no 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 that's that's what my parents named me Adon which is the uh, Spanish variation of, of Adam and uh, so if you speak Spanish you can say Adon otherwise go by Adam that's yeah. fine but <laughs> it gives me a chance to talk a little bit about how you know, at some point my identity was under, you know, construction and mom was like, you know, you don't want to sound like you speak too much Spanish or sound too Mexican. They might look at you differently. And so, yeah, Adam, it is. Wow. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm so used to calling you Adam. So that's. We should probably say why he's on the on the episode today and introduce him a little bit. Right. Because yeah. nobody knows him. 
No, but they will after this. Yeah, of I course. mean, a lot of people know him. He's published. He is sure. a doctor. No, I get it. But <laughs> this the, is... our 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 audience of three people are going Adam Alvarez. Okay, great, because none of our audience are. Uh, I can't wait to see what you're going to say next. Yeah, you know, none of our audience are probably in the same academic circles as you. How about that? Right. Yeah. He just called right. everyone dumb, mm-hmm. including <laughs> all the people in council. Block. Including myself. No, no, because you don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So Adam is, uh, well, well, we'll give your whole uh, resume in here in a bit, but we are kicking off our conversations on race. Uh, this episode will actually drop on February 1st or 2nd. Uh, we'll be right in getting started with Black History Month. And we thought we wanted to give the entire month of February over to having conversations of race, racial reconciliation, what that looks like. And Adam, you have uh, some real unique perspectives on it, and you have done a lot of work in this arena. And so we thought, well, you know, I had my dad on last week and have my brother-in-law on this week. Um, We're just going to keep pulling from my family members, uh, you know, from from here on out. That's not true. We've got uh, some more (laughs) guests lined up next week and and the weeks after that I'm I'm really excited about. But we are super excited. Excited to have you here. Now, Adam, before we jump into everything, uh, I believe you have listened to maybe two episodes, so you kind of get the feel of what we do here. Um, that's more than Tim has done. And so we uh, we kick off our podcast just kind of farting around and talking about things that are happening in this past week. And there was something real big that happened this past week, the inauguration that was a, a big deal. We inaugurated a new president and female vice president, and that was on TV. There was a whole lot of things that happened. Do you all have any thoughts on that? Did you guys watch it at all? I watched parts of it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I watched, I, I caught the very end of his speech, uh, saw the prayer by the pastor, saw the poet, uh, saw Garth Brooks show up in boots, <laughs> and then hug everybody with no mask on. Right. <laughs> Uh, no, you know, his history was made for sure. I, I think you and I have had a slight conversation about the the young lady who was the poet mm-hmm. who uh, killed it, did a yeah. very good job. So. Amanda Gorman. Okay. Uh, we're going to try to get her on the podcast. Yeah, That'll right. never happen. <laughs> uh, she had, I think, 12 Twitter followers before the poem. And by the end of the poem, it was up to like... 300,000 and I believe she's topped over 2 million. See, that's all now. you need to do. You just, just write a poem. To, no, you just need to get your, get get on the stage of the inauguration and all of a sudden yeah. you'll have Twitter followers. That's true. Yeah. I should have I should have thought of that. I'll wait for four more years when uh, Larry Hogan is up there. Or you could have uh, just dressed up in mittens and sat with your legs crossed and then you could have become an internet sensation. So, there were so many things that happened in the inauguration. I mean, some of it was was dumb. Uh, some of it was really, really good. And what's amazing to me is out of all of the things that happened coming out of the inauguration, the thing we were all taking away from it are the Bernie memes. <laughs> right. <laughs> who, who thought that Bernie was going to be the one to unite both exactly. sides of the aisle? Welcome to 2021. <laughs> I mean, it's like 2020 broke everything. And then 2021 was drunk when it started rebuilding and go, we're going to put this here <laughs> yeah. and we're going to do this. And, and it's somehow working. Like I've, I don't know that I've ever seen anything like the Bernie memes blow up this much across the board everywhere this quickly. Like I know at some point it's all going to come crashing down and everybody's going to get really, really sick of it. I don't know that we're there yet. Maybe by the time this airs, I'm kind of like, I'm over it. I I was done with it by day two. 
I mean, I, I thought it was it was clever. I thought it was great. But at, at this point in time, people are just like hanging on to a dead horse kind of thing. At the end of the day, I think uh, you know there's so much tension that people needed a comic release. And as soon as that door was open, the entire internet world ran through it and said, "Let's just let's let's just do this for a little while." Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm grateful for it. it now uh, on the uh, on the inauguration uh, piece, I was thinking. I don't know if other schools did this around here, but um, one of the school districts in southern New Jersey, where I live, um, asked the school leaders not to let the elementary students watch the inauguration. Not let them. Not let them. Reason. Okay. I, I'm still trying to learn why that was such a big deal because going back to you know to when I was in school, I remember you know these these types of events yeah, we would watch, yeah. you know, the, yeah, even, right. even the, the challenger, I remember <laughs> yeah. going up into space, you know, like these are things that you want kids to understand to, yeah. to kind of grow their civic engagement. I remember, uh, specifically we were in, uh, it was AP, uh, us government or something, but I was in high school. We, we turned on the TV and watched the OJ verdict. Like I, yeah. I have a oh, yeah, vivid memory of being yeah. in class watching that, yeah. but, but, but no inauguration for those young kids. And I'm That's still weird. trying to understand, understand why, that. um, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll have to fill you all in later on. That was, yeah, a, what that, was, that was public school, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. In Jersey. Mm-hmm. Probably Chris Christie. Said boycott. No. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, my kids were downstairs working in the little school space. And I was like, guys, I mean, I, I got about halfway through and I went, oh, they should, they should probably be watching this. Uh, and so they came up right after Lady Gaga uh, kind of butchered the national anthem. I know I'm kind of alone in that. Um, I agree. I, it was oh, yeah. I, to me like there are certain songs that you go. This is such a good song. The only thing you could possibly do is ruin it by your performance. <laughs> and I know everybody's like, oh, she was great. She was. I mean, she's Lady Gaga. She can do whatever she wants to do. But uh, I thought it was I thought it was terrible. Wonderful voice. But yeah, great it, voice. It was just... Great voice. Um, I, I don't know that you need to go. You know what? The national anthem is so good. All I'm going to do is change up the rhythm and really make it performative. And I'm like, no, thank you, please. And but the, I mean, it's not just her. It's most people. When I saw the uh, the start of the Packers and Bucks game last night, they had some chick singing it. You want to talk about that? We're going to. But I know. Uh, thank you. Uh, some lady sang it on Zoom, and it just pretty voice. But you go, you're this doesn't need the performance. You don't need to go like, okay, but watch me. I'm going to make it better. And (laughs) that's what, uh, that's what lady Gaga did. And I just, I'm not a fan. Josie, you're not a fan. Yeah. I, what I've been telling people is I think she did a great job singing her version of the national anthem, but that's what everybody does. It's it's, it's always their rent. That's literally what people say. It's performing their rendition of the star spangled banner. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, I don't I don't get why I mean I prefer my preference just sing the song but right. I don't get why people always get mad when somebody tries to zhuzh it up and be really creative in it and as long as it's not Roseanne Barr or oh, Carl Rose. Lewis you know Furry. right yeah like just you know sing your own rendition I don't get the uproar well I personally get upset because you know I was raised by a guy that played the national anthem mm-hmm. for a living. Like when you woke up, that's how he would wake you up every morning. But he was like on the French horn. But your father. Actually, it was Dvorak's ninth. Would your, <laughs> would your father play his rendition or would he play the sheet music? He would play, he would play the sheet Star music. Spangled Banner because that's is, what the, the Naval Academy band played. Right. Yeah. So that's not his rendition. His, literally, his job was to play the notes on the page. Yeah. But singers have that freedom. Anyway, we're off. Mm. Yeah. 
we're off. No, I mean, you, you can be wrong, Tim. That's fine. No, I mean, I, I think I, I get what you're saying. I mean it, but it's to me, it is a, I would consider, and we talked about it with the kids, like it's not spiritual, but it is in my mind, sacred. Like it, it is something that is, is so well done and has such meaning. The only thing you can do by being performative with it is to kind of rob it of some of that meaning and say, look at me versus look at the, I mean, and you know what, and you could, you could apply the same thing to the discussions we had over the last four weeks about worship, which is you can take a good song and if you get up there and are just showy about it, whatever, then all of a sudden the performance becomes about you versus what is happening. And to me, that just felt like I should, it should be super straight. I loved the lady who did the uh, Pledge of Allegiance in American Sign Language. That was, I'm 40 years old. I've never seen anybody do that before. And that was really, really pretty. And the poem was great. So last night, your favorite team lost the Green Bay Packers um, when we're recording this. Um, did you know now, so, uh, you know, being a guy who, with the Ravens, I'm not a huge Ravens fan, but I watch AFC football all the time and you are in the NFC world as a mm-hmm. Green Bay fan. Did you know now that Tom Brady actually has tied for the most NFC championships, Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers now? One year in the league, he has now tied Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers with one NFC championship. So, welcome. Welcome to now watching Tom Brady go to the Super Bowl from your side of the tracks. You know what, though? Oh, so, so, here's the deal. I, I mean, to me, that was a game that is heartbreaking because of incredibly poor coaching and incredibly poor defense. I've seen a lot of people uh, dump you on know, Aaron Rodgers for this. And I'm going, um, he was like the one thing that was pretty consistent through the whole game. But I want to talk about Tom Brady for a second. He's it, it, as much as I'm not a fan, but he's the greatest of all time. Yeah. Yep. I don't understand. And I guess I don't understand why people are not a fan because people say, because yeah. he's not on your team. Yeah. But I mean, but you can still appreciate someone who is playing at a high level. Uh, and- he will be much more appreciated after he retires. Just like Jeter, yeah. just like all the others. Yeah. He'll be much more appreciated afterwards. It's just because you don't, you're tired of watching him win. That's all. Well, you're tired of watching him win with one that same team. Correct. When you can yeah. go somewhere else and be successful with a new group. That's oh, he, he proved he proved it. Exactly. Yeah. He proved yeah. Well, I, I really like that the criticism was basically, it's nothing without Belichick. Right. And then he's like, <sighs> Yeah, watch I don't me. Know. Yeah. I don't know. People are just like, because he, he, he's, he's good looking and he wins and he whines. I'm like, it sounds like you guys whine. Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I can appreciate... <laughs> Uh, Wasn't he involved in some kind of like conspiratorial cheating scandal a few years ago? Yeah, but I mean, and I'm not I'm not defending that, but I'm going. There's a lot of people who mm. take supplements and things. I I I know at least personally, I don't care for Brody because because of the Patriots. Brody, Brody, Brody. Was that was that a (laughs) Tim Brody intentional burn? (laughs) He mispronounced his name. I didn't think I did, but Brody Brady. Yeah. It's Tam Brody. Speaking of supplements, uh, I know you have on the list to talk about Hank Aaron, which in my opinion is the greatest home run hitter of all time uh, because he did not take supplements to get his 755, unlike Mr. Bonds, who broke his record, but it's pretty obvious. It's funny how how we we call it supplements. Like, let's just call it what it is. (laughs) Dude was injecting (laughs) human growth hormones. I'm sure Hank Aaron was taking some sort of supplements. Hank Aaron is... Centrum or something. To both of... But yeah, he passed away this week. Both of you, Tim and Adam, like you guys are, you guys could have gone pro. Oh, for sure. 
Yeah, you guys know, are ball maybe. players. I, the only reason I didn't go pro is just, it's just it's hard on the family. So I wanted right. to stay home with right. my wife, and it's just it's tough. Exactly. Make more money and, in and, ministry. And, and you know, right when I was about to sign, I don't know if this was the case for you. I just felt God calling me to the yeah. life of academia. Yeah. Right. You know, so <laughs> that's yeah. what happens with most jocks. And me to the sacred, you know, exactly. life of clergy. And what are you going to do? Yeah. Argue with God? Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what position did you play? I was a pitcher. And you were a pitcher. Pitcher outfield, yeah. Pitcher, okay. Pitcher what, first base. Yeah. Well, you're taller than me. I'm faster than you. So that's the way it ends up being. <laughs> that might be the case. What, did you ever, like, uh, test your fastball? Test my fastball? Yeah, like, get what this the world is I want to find out who can you at least act like a man as you're asking these <laughs> so, you know, questions? I don't care about baseball. Test baseball your sucks. fastball? <laughs> what I'm saying is, did you ever get, like, clocked? a speed? T- yeah, clocked. clocked. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I, by the way, all three of us have played the same amount of baseball professionally, but go ahead. I topped out at 84. That was my level in high school. I was probably about the same. Yeah. 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 But I, I, I want to find out which one of you is better. Can we pause it real quick? Does anyone have I had a, some I, wicked breaking stuff? That's what I really yeah. hung my hat on that. And a, and a nice little change that just I was a circle people to just kind of chase. Yeah. Ugh, you know, now was it an intentional change or did the ball just kind of wobble all around? All right, you have no idea what a changeup is. So you yeah. just stay in your lane. I know, I'll stay in my lane. You're a great musician, by the Thank way. Thank you. So since we're going to talk about race, let me just go ahead and, and I'm just going to break the ice and Please, say what yeah. I'm not supposed to say. I'm going to go ahead and say Adam was better because of his Hispanic uh, background or was for sure he? at baseball. I, don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we both have the same level of pro experience That's true. <laughs> as, as me. Yeah. So uh, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, I'm. I don't know. I when I played on the church softball team for a while. Uh, what? Yeah, quite competitive, I hear. They found out the guy that was coaching uh, found out that I hit really weird, and that if I took like one step back, I could actually send the ball into whichever field you're not supposed to send it into. And so he would just every now and again tell me to drop my left foot, and the ball would go to the right. <laughs> And and he, I'm I'm being dead serious. How old were you? I mean, I was married, so it was like mid twenties. What? Oh, this was not here. Drop with this your left foot. What this is church? Your, yeah. What you play softball mean? with this church. Mm-hmm. I guess it was a church league. I mean, it was. What are you? Ta- uh, I've been on the church softball team <laughs> since I was eighteen. Here, you've never played. Yeah, I, I mean, wouldn't it, have allowed you to play on our team. <laughs> He was on the B team. That There's was uh, no, they played right Brian, back here Brian behind the playground. The I won the oh okay sure. Yeah, okay, on we're the back. Co- on the co-ed softball team. Never mind. Gotcha. Yeah, I was on the co- my my wife gotcha. and I played on the co-ed softball team. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So, all right. So I was on the team. Sure. And, and Sorry, I was I, thinking about the real softball team. So oh yeah. Okay. Fine. Real softball team. Please. Yeah. Real softball teams are women. Okay. Um, and I mean that like lovingly. I'm going. Women dominate. Softball. If you dominate softball as a man, you women also dominate in relationships big, too. Yeah. Isn't that true. right, Jeff? That is. <laughs> she she was the reason we played because she said we will go play uh, softball co-ed, and so we did that. I I did I did. Um, this is a confession. Very early, I did sort of. I didn't I didn't I didn't, I didn't I did I guess something. I didn't realize it was a wrong thing to do, but I still did it anyway. It was I was on first base. Somebody hit. I was running towards second. Second baseman caught the ball, and apparently you were supposed to dip out and allow him to continue with the play, and I just barreled toward him so that he couldn't <laughs> you do You just it. took him out. <laughs> I didn't take him out, but, I mean, we kind of – like I made it where he couldn't throw to first, and he uh, he was really irate. I think he was the pastor of that church, and uh, and he was – 
not thrilled with me, but he was yelling and screaming. And I was like, I didn't know. I don't think we ever went back after that. And but then you had to tell him, listen, dude, I don't even know what three outs means. So I'm just here running. three outs means. I'm just here running around and I just in asked him if he's ever tested how fast he can throw to first. And, uh, well, let not. me ask a question about uh, Hank Aaron here. Good. It's Actually, a, okay, this is not a question. It's, it's, it's more a, a quote from, from Sandlot. Do you remember when the Ooh. babe visits, um, what's the guy's name? The, the old man next door? Benny. Benny. Oh, yeah. Benny. Yeah, yeah, Benny. Benny so Benny, he, he sure. visits Benny in his dream and basically encourages him to just go over and challenge the dog. And he's looking through Benny's baseball cards and he goes, huh, Henry Aaron. I don't know why, but can I keep this kid? And then he puts it in his back pocket and the scene kind of ends. And, mm. you know, but you would understand that. Hank I understand Aaron that reference. was the one who, who, who beat the babe's record. But Wait, Henry Aaron is also Hank Aaron. Yes. The, <gasps> this is like the great Bambino. The great Bambino was Hank Aaron. No, I'm kidding. I know that. Jeez. I was, about I know, to, I know I that was, you're the guy who said that Butterbeer came from Star Wars. So uh-huh. I heard that. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. I was in the one and a half episode you listened he to. He was kidding. Yeah, he was kidding. Yeah. Anyway, so if you might be hearing some other things that are happening uh, that are not in this room. So, like, maybe if, if you're listening somewhere, you think, do I hear children yelling? Uh, <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> we actually, in order to accommodate Adam and get him in here, we needed to uh, kind of move some things around. So we're kind of sharing a space. And there are kids that are somewhere close by uh we did ask them to be quiet and uh, they have gotten actually significantly louder since we've started you know um so but i mean it's good i mean kids we want to be inclusive and and you know jesus said you know like let the shrill shrieking of the infants come to me (laughs) 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 you all have kids so i've got a like make up the i hate children quotient of this podcast there you go Wait, wait 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 you think we don't hate children have you listened to anything that I've said? Have you looked at kids? Tim's Facebook feed in the oh past? Oh my gosh, it's so six gross. months. It yeah. is I, so gross. Am I? I mean, it is. It is. It is. Am uh, I wrong? Uh, like my daughter's way cuter than than anybody that I've ever met in my entire life. So. Your daughter is very cute. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. No, it, we're, we don't take any issue with your daughter. So am it's, I not allowed to exploit that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, but man. And it's like nonstop. Uh, Look at me with my baby. I love her so much. <laughs> I mean, we're good. I'm glad you. I'm okay, glad you love then I'll baby. just be toxic on Facebook and add to the rest of the nonsense. I'm right. kidding. I'm kidding. You're Which fire <laughs> should I? <laughs> By the way, Hank Aaron, do yourself a favor. Go to YouTube and watch his um, his 715th 715, his home run when he passed Babe Ruth's record when he became before Barry Bonds came in. Um, when Hank Aaron hit that home run, uh, like people flooded the field right. and literally mm-hmm. ran around the bases with him. Hmm. And it just reminds me of what a different time that was. <laughs> right, <laughs> Can right, you imagine? right. Can now, you imagine that happened now? People like just running onto the field to right. run around the bases with him. It's unbelievable. Well, I yeah. want to. I want to know what happened to. There were there were two guys in particular that seemed to to run with him almost all the way around. Right, like right. shook his hand and everything. Yeah. Right, right. And he, I don't know if he he was kind of like get off me. You know, right. <laughs> it I might think, not count if you touch me and I touch the base. There's a rule in baseball that you can't touch right. anybody who's in inbounds. Right, right. Oh. or it doesn't count. But I'm guessing um, fans aren't on that list of yeah. illegal. <laughs> but who are those people, and what are they doing today? I, right, I want to know? know. I want to hear their story. <laughs> the funny thing is, if you were to like post that online and say, "Hey, I want to, I want to talk to these two people," you would get 250 mm-hmm. genuine responses of people who have revised history in their head, and be like, "Oh right. no, I was, I that, was guy. that guy. Yeah, I was, I was that, that guy. guy. Yeah, yeah, probably from Council Bluffs." 
That would be the <laughs> only way right. we'd get a chance to, to hear from them. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We want to kind of move into a time of, of discussing race, racial reconciliation, taking a look at where uh, we have been, where we are, and where we need to go. And so to do that, we've brought Adam in. Adam, I'm just going to like, I'm going to tell you who you are. Okay. You are. I'll, and I'll cheer for myself. An assistant professor of urban education in the Department of Language Literacy and Sociocultural Education at Rowan University. Sounds interesting. How big is your business card? Yeah, I hope you didn't have to pay per letter. <laughs> yeah, we, we go uh, six font. His business, <laughs> his business card is on eight and a half by 11. Uh, and so you do a lot of research, you do a lot of writing, and your research kind of centers on issues of race, equity, justice in schools. Right. So that's what you've been working on. Yeah. How did you get into that? I mean, I taught for six years at the elementary level, and um, I taught at a psychiatric facility, which is kind of like juvie, if you can imagine, but uh, supposedly much more therapeutic. Um, so in that in that uh, area, kids are heavily medicated, they're on full lockdown, and um, they're followed around by really giant people, like you know, just slightly bigger than you, Jeff. That, and, yeah. And they're intimidating. Just also. in the shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> now he's saying that because we discovered right before this started that he is that half Jeff's an inch huge. taller than me. Yeah. You're half an inch taller than me. Um, so anyways, I taught for six years, wanted to become a principal, um, and then ended up, you know, not doing that, but moving to Pittsburgh to start my PhD up there. And well, and, and to break that in, you went to Pittsburgh because one of your teachers went and started a department for, a what center, like a, a research center. center. Yeah, yeah, research center. And he handpicked you right. out of anybody he could take. He said, I want you to come with me and be a part of this kind of inaugural uh, group and, and program. Right, right. Yeah, so you're being a little humble here. I appreciate it. But, okay, I mean, you're, you're you. creme de la creme. That's French. So now we've had German, right. Spanish, and French on this episode <laughs> already. That's great. Okay, and so you've been doing a lot of research uh, and how race shapes kind of teaching and learning mm -hmm. um, and how you can, I, I like, this was interesting, that your research aims to support schools and teachers in building equitable policies and practices that recognize and disrupt historically marginalizing systems of oppression. I don't know that a lot of people would look at schools and see those kind of things present. Mm. Why not? Well, I mean, or am I wrong on that? Do people yeah, see that yeah. all the time? Well, um, I mean, I, th I think I think it, it can go both ways. Some people know that there are issues at the school and community levels, and it's just, you know, we just choose to kind of evade those things. Um, other people uh, are really active in their work around trying to change those um, uh, outcomes for kids. And so, I mean, at the school level, we're just really the way I, I talk about this work is we're trying to help more kids be successful. You know, we a lot of kids are doing really, really well. Um, parents are happy with the schools uh, that their kids attend, but there's still more that we can do. And these are public schools that we can shift so that more kids can be successful. And that's kind of the gist of it. And I realize you could literally give a dissertation to this question. So uh, being a white kid growing up in the suburbs, going to public school my entire life, uh, and obviously we're, you know, on this side of integration and all that kind of stuff. So we had, you know, uh, it, it, it's not like we were a white only school. Um, but my school had money, and so we. I kind of look at my public school thing and say, all right, well, uh, in some ways, like, all right, there's the black kids and the Hispanic kids and all that kind of stuff, and they had the same education as me. 
when I think of inequality, I think of suburbs and city. And I know you do a lot of, you know, so obviously the city, especially in our city of Baltimore, like, I mean, they don't have the nearly the money and the resources that we had out in the, in the suburbs. Do you feel um, that, I, and, and I, I see that inequity for sure. Do you feel that there's inequity even in the integrated, you know, suburb schools where you have a multiplicity of races? Multiplicity, is that the right word? Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. sure. yeah th- well, there, so you're talking about, about two different levels. Right. Uh, so there's certainly inequalities between city schools right. and, and suburban and even rural schools. But sure. uh, some of what sociologists have found just in, in the last half half century of work is that there are a lot of inequalities within districts as mm-hmm. well. Okay. Um, so you can have one school district, but schools within that school district have greater uh, mm-hmm. gaps in their achievement and, and school outcomes than say the 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 differences between schools here and in Baltimore mm-hmm. you know um you know so so in that sense what does that mean it means that uh people can really become sort of confused about what this work means about equity and equality it's like sure. aren't you talking about those schools out there mm-hmm. in, in in Baltimore and Philly where exactly. I live you know Camden no no right here is where a lot of these issues begin uh you know between between schools in the same sure. sort of like more affluent school district sure yeah, I know that we have um, that we have seen that kind of just in Pasadena where we live. I mean, this high school that we went to in the past couple of years has really had some race issues, uh, largely because they've been bringing in kids from the city to kind of make them a part of of just the little suburb school, and um, and that has really kind of ratcheted up some tension that was not there when we were attending. Um, and so it really is interesting to see how all that that plays out. So um, we're not just going to talk only about education today. But, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. But I, I want to kind of kick into this series, sort of explaining what we're doing here, um, why we felt like this was something that we needed to do, something that we want to do. And I know, Tim, you were fairly you, you were kind of pushing this. We had had the conversation about wanting to do this and make this a whole series. And so kind of wanted to ask you a little bit, what is the purpose of what we're doing? Why are we having these conversations now? I know our podcast is largely good Christian people trying to make the church better, but this is something that we as pastors, leaders uh, want to promote and, and address um, just in the church. So why are we kind of doing that now? Because the church should care. Um, the church should definitely care. Uh, I mean, we've said it over and over again. We believe that all are created in the image of God. And so, uh, in our view, there should be equity. And so we have to, as a church, then look around and say, how can we help that? Not let's let, let, you know, and so you come from the academia world, Adam, which is awesome. And I'm thankful that you come also as a believer as well with a biblical worldview. Um, but you know, we, we can't just, the church can't leave that to academia right? and say, Hey, you guys figure out equity and we'll just be over here in our own little bubble. So the church should care. Um, but at the same time, I, what I have learned through this political season and I, Jeff, you and I have had conversations about it like sidebar conversations. Our primary job is to disciple mm-hmm. um, the people within the walls of the church. We, we are to evangelize as well, but I, I, I'm a believer that discipleship and evangelism are hand in hand. You know, they're, they're all one and the same. But our primary job is to disciple, and what I've learned over this political climate is that discipleship doesn't primarily come from pulpit proclamation, I say. Yeah. Um, people don't just, they're not going to listen to a broadcast and have it change their mind. 
discipleship and uh, transformation, transformational conversation happen from actual conversation. Mm -hmm. And so if um, people can listen to us, talk to Adam and talk to other uh, fellows who are going to come in who bring different perspectives than just us three white guys. Right. And uh, especially bring perspectives of, you know, learned perspectives. Um, I think that I will certainly learn from it. And so if nothing else, I want to be able to broaden my understanding and broaden, um, uh, you know, m my uh, just perspective on all of it. But if somebody who's listening can learn from it as well, that's awesome. And so the, the church has a PR problem and it's, not especially, but in, inclusive of this idea of race. Um, I think that the church, which uh, uh, that let's just say this, the church doesn't see itself as racist yeah, because we don't see ourselves as racist because we say, well, you know, we have friends of different colors and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. Um, and we have people who attend our church yeah. who are persons of color. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But at the same time, the church has remained blind to some things. And if not blind, we've just said, let's let that conversation go somewhere else because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think it's high time for the church to say, all right, let's let's learn about the issues and let's have the uncomfortable conversations. No, no one, no one likes to jump into the fray uh, yeah. of things that uh, are going to make us feel a little bit like we haven't done what we need to do, um, or none of us really want to identify that the world is broken outside of sin. But quite yeah. honestly, sin speaks into division of race. Yeah. And so, if we're going to address sin, then we're going to have to address everything that sin. Uh, colors and so yeah. sin moves into and divides race and so let's jump yeah. in and be un uncomfortable and it's interesting in those moments it does seem like people are very quick to to tell the pastors and, and church leaders just focus on the gospel just preach the gospel and then if we just do what jesus says everything will work out yeah but the gospel that's what the gospel does right it's and the gospel and takes two that. and makes one yeah um and i i uh the gospel is, is Jesus sitting down with a Samaritan woman at the well, sending his disciples away, by the way, and say, hey, you guys aren't really going to understand this right now. So let me yeah. just have a one on one conversation with this yeah. woman. And then when they come back, it's like, hey, what are you talking to her for? Like, that's why I sent you away. Right. Exactly. <laughs> because you would have called her a dog to her face. Yeah. Uh, and so we're going to take a slightly different approach uh, than we would normally take in our um, normal episodes and podcasts where normally the three of us and our guests or whoever, um, we're kind of just sharing ideas, understandings that we have wisdom in this one. We're going to approach this slightly more, uh, in an academic way in which we recognize you are the professor. We are the students. And so we're going to kind of give you more of the floor to just instruct us, kind of explain to us how, um, race looks, the history of it, where we see it in modern day context. And what we're going to do, hopefully for the benefit of our listeners, is we're going to ask questions um, that may sound dumb, uh, questions that may be a little more um, transparent to show that we haven't figured it all out. Like our desire is we want to see the church a part of racial reconciliation and, and working that out in our churches, in our communities. Um, and so we want to kind of give you the opportunity to, to speak in and allow the listeners to learn from kind of our ignorance of, of some things. And so um, I know you just finished a symposium uh, on race at the University of Pittsburgh. You were talking about race trauma healing. You want to kind of open us up, tell us what that was like, where you were going with that. So the symposium was uh, to celebrate MLK, you know, the, mm -hmm. the legacy. And, and so every year the University of Pittsburgh um, Hosts a symposium, and so my role this year was to keynote, and and I was focusing 
on this intersection of race, trauma, and healing because I think uh, we're really in a season where we see a lot of new wounds. Mm. Uh, folks are recognizing for the first time that they've been a part of that, um, inflicting wounds on others. And they're also recognizing that there are systems kind of in place that allow this wounding to go on. Mm. And so one of the big points was that these are not just individual wounds, but these are collective wounds that uh, cause all of us to sort of reflect on the ways that uh, other people's wounds are our own pains as well. And so how can we move to a place of more collective healing? Um, And that's really what the gist of it was. Um, But it was also trying to identify how these pains come from, um, you know, from racialized systems. So uh, now you ask, what, what, what do you mean by racialized systems? <laughs> what do you mean by racialized systems? <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a lot of it is, is really about how our society has been constructed a, around uh, race, uh, race, racism, structural racism. A lot of that gets kind of lumped in into this, you know, white supremacy is another way that we've, we've, we've talked about um, structural racism. And so a lot of that we know from the, the, the research um, has, has really shaped the conditions in which people live, the, uh, the conditions in which they learn and experience these types of wounds. Um, and so that's, you know, it, it, I'm happy to see that more people are engaging in these conversations, um, including y'all too. You know, I mean, yeah. I, think, I think that's important for all of the, uh, the areas of our societies to engage in the conversation and try to learn how we can contribute to other people's healings because when, when other people heal, we heal as well. Sure. And so I want to talk uh, throughout the episode, we're going to ask you a couple questions in terms of helping us to identify some terms, because there are a lot of, I know in, in these conversations, a lot of words get thrown around that we assign meaning to that may not actually mean what is, is being said. So can you first just help us understand some of these controversial terms, understanding that they have stigma, they're not as scary as they sound. And let's start with just race, systemic racism. Like what is, what does that mean? Yeah, so race, uh, the, the best way to, to really wrap our heads around that is to understand that it is a construction. Um, so that means it, it is socially constructed, it's historically constructed, it's legally constructed, physically constructed, not biologically constructed, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, and so all that means that we've assigned meaning to people based on the color of their skin um, to, to, to really order their worth in society. So mm-hmm. that becomes like the basis for this. Now you'll have some people say, well, if it's just a construct, how is it that it can be such a real issue in society? If it's fake and made up, why are we making such a big deal about it? And the reason is, is because a lot of how our society was developed was around those ideas. So mm-hmm. uh, it may be a fake thing, but people's lives can tr- truly be impacted by it uh, yeah. in the way that we design our schools and the way that our churches function in the way that our criminal justice system functions, et cetera. So race is really just a construction, but it helps drive the way that we design um, our social structures in society. So when you think about structural racism, that refers to kind of the underlying um, rules and, and assumptions that, that occur within each of the, the various systems in society. So um, we, we learn to not question the way the criminal justice system operates. Mm. We learn to not question how schools teach and what they teach. And we learn how to not question, you know, the, the basis of, of how church is done, mm. you know? So, so those, all those 
uh, norms are really feed into the structure of you know racializing people in in the U.S. So um, you know I think it's important to know that a lot of this really stemmed from the early settler colonial times because some of you may know white people didn't think of themselves as white people before they came to the U.S. Sure. Right, and so yeah. I mean even since the very beginning. A lot of what we're seeing today was some of the foundations of, of this country, and that is this idea of divide and conquer. You know, so if the if the the rich, uh, you know, the wealthy landowners could create divisions among the working people, that is, you know, uh, indentured servants, enslaved people uh, across races, um, then they could ensure that their property would remain intact, and they could they could maintain control. Because I think what they learned was that there was much more of them you know, poor working class people than there were of rich landowners, right? Yeah. And so the idea was how can we convince folks to fight amongst themselves so that we can maintain our status in society? Mm. And so that became sort of the basis of racialization. So Nothing to see here, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so here's my question. So people who say there is no systemic racism um, because they love everybody, and they they don't mm -hmm. see a problem why they can't just continue to love everybody, and so don't talk to me about this term of systemic racism. And to be clear, I believe in every single term that we use today has been politicized somehow by the sure. left or the right, and it's been used as a bomb. It's been lobbed into it's it's ammunition, and so uh, no, the, our listeners today, whether they're left or right, have, have, they've already have definitions in their head. So I'm glad you're here to give us hopefully pure definitions that haven't been politicized but to the people who say listen i love everybody i'm not a racist there's no systemic racism what, what do you say to them yeah so but the best way that i've come to learn how to talk about systemic racism is mm -hmm. is to think about how uh, patriarchy works and sexism for example right um, so as a man, I don't typically think about what those relationships are like to walk into a place and be perceived mm. differently, but women know what that feels like, right? So, um, I mean, I would never tell a woman that patriarchy doesn't exist or that sure. sexism is, is over. Now that y'all can work and, you know, vote, like, it's all free, but women will tell you, no, because when I walk into a place, I feel men look at me. I've mm -hmm. been cut off in conversations. Sure. You know, uh, I've missed out on opportunities. And so, yeah, no, there is still something there. And most women will tell you, like, I believe men sort of dominate this this uh, this uh, society. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's helped me understand how the, 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 the conversation on structural racism is still very pre prevalent. Sure. Just because I don't walk into a room and feel that doesn't mean women don't. Sure. OK, so. Um, when people say, well, that's, you know, I don't understand what that is and that, that can't be the case anymore just because they don't have a, an experience with it personally doesn't mean it, it doesn't exist. Sure. Um, and so what they fail to recognize is that there's a difference between an explicit act or an overt act of racism. That is to say, you know, getting called uh, a name by somebody passing by. That's sure. an explicit act. Whereas the implicit or um, covert acts um, are the things that sort of, you know, occur in society, whether they try, you know, whether they do it, uh, they do something or not. So like, but like with sexism and racism, it is possible for, and I'm going to use this word broadly. I don't know any other words, so I apologize if it offend you, but the offender, right? 
it's possible to be a part of a structure that benefits you. And regardless of your intent, you may be a part of that system without doing anything to intentionally build that. And we can even say, no, I don't want to have that kind of system, but we tend to ignore that that system benefits us, whether it be men, whether it be white people uh, that we can look and say, look, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be sexist here. I'm not trying to be racist. I'd love everybody. I want everybody to succeed. But the systemic side of it is that there is a process of which these isms are are routed through and and we are beneficiaries of that. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the easy way to think about it is that it's so embedded uh, in the way these processes happen, you know, so. Uh, when I'm talking to teachers, you know, one of the things that, that I that I mention is this notion of physics, right? So, an object in motion. Finish that for me. Well, I'm stays sorry. in motion. Stays in motion, right? Right. <laughs> unless an like, outside like, force. I've never heard this version of it before. <laughs> right. Like, oh, this is so really good. An object <laughs> in motion stays in motion unless right. an outside force acts upon it. And so, the way that our society is structured, we call it the status quo. We right. can basically kick back. And life will continue in the way that it always has. Machine. Exactly. Yeah. And so unless we come in and, 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 and you know, disrupt or, you know, deconstruct, uh, we, we don't really have a chance of changing the trajectory of that. And so that's really the structural side of it mm-hmm. is if we kick back and do nothing, we're going to continue to see these trends uh, and racial disparities across all different right. uh, markers of life. And so, the problem with that mm-hmm. is that the people who need to do the destruction and the disruption of it. Um, those are the people who are the ones holding the power that if the people underneath are saying, well, wait a second, we want a different system. Um, that has to be done by the people who are running the system. Right. Right. right? Or benefiting and, from it. Or right. benefiting from yeah. it. Like, and, and people who have the power who have, you know, I mean, we, we've kind of identified those, but the people who have the power are not going to be real quick to say, I want to give that up and change the, something that is benefiting me, um, a lot of times it's like, well, then how can we just get it to benefit everybody as opposed to, well, you know, I may need to give up some of my status and some of whatever so that I can lift others up. Is yeah. that accurate? Well, I mean, I mean, let, let's, let's go back to the, um, the settler colonial times. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the embedded part of, of, of racialization has, has been working you know, uh, tremendously. And the way that we know that is because even after, uh, you, you look at, you look at the North and the South, um, uh, you know, the civil war, right? Like there, even, even at that point you had people favoring, um, keeping the, the institution of slavery alive, mm-hmm. even when they didn't even own slaves, you know what I mean? Like, right, what, right. what is that about? Right. Um, they didn't benefit from it. Um, you have people that favor, I'm fast forwarding just a little bit to sure. the union era. Um, you have f- people who are actually opposing uh, black and brown people, Chinese people joining their unions. Um, you know, and, and if you know how unions work, you need more bodies to, to push back. If you keep people out of your unions and the employers, you know, kick you out of the job because you're, you're, um, you're, um, you're striking, then the people of color get the job because they're right. not a part of that. Right. Right. And so these divisions have been happening for quite some time and that's that embedded nature. You know, it's like what I'm seeing, especially with, with folks maybe around here too, but, uh, certainly in parts of Southern New Jersey is that, 
um, they tend to favor and and vote similarly to 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 folks who are uh, wealthy who live in kind of like the higher end neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Y'all have more in common with some of the other people who are sharing similar struggles, mm-hmm. like say in Philly or or mm-hmm. in Baltimore here. Like, but you you would rather uh, divide yourselves on a racial front than on a socioeconomic front. Mm. Why? Yeah. Why? Why? I mean. I mean, listen to the arguments, you know, they, yeah. they, they, uh, people who make those decisions, I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of the narratives that I hear, um, you know, coming from white people in, in rural and suburban areas, um, is that the problem is black and brown people right. in those communities. They're the reason, they're the reason, you know, when, when in fact, um, they, they could, you know, their, their kids would be, their their kids would be better supported if they they partnered with people who share similar struggles. Yeah. Um, but they don't see it that way. They'd rather divide on the racial front rather than come together across racial lines um, so that their kids have better schools and better communities and so forth. So let me because I'm a, I'm not an academic at all. So simpleman simpleton. Um, so let me let me see if simple I just Tim. yeah simple Tim. Let me see if I can make sure I got it right. So um, and sometimes when I try to boil things down, I I you know I say things wrongly. But let me just make sure. That's right. So systemic racism and the 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 understanding of systemic racism, whether I think I'm racist or not. All right. So I can say, listen, I love everybody. I don't have any prejudice. But the fact is, the the um. The presentation is the machine of society still works in such a way, whether I'm racist or not, the machine of society still works in such a way that if my name is Tyrone, Aquan, or Rainisha, um, if my name is the, any of those three or any other kind of historically maybe you know predominantly black names, they're still going to have a harder time to get a job if their name is on the resume than something else. That's still what the machine is, right? Right, And so it, even if I'm not racist, then uh, I can still say, okay, I can still identify that the system still works in such a way that exactly. people with those names at the top of the resume are still gonna have a harder time than Timothy. Exactly, okay. yeah. But, then, but then how, so I, I know there'll be some people who are asking, okay, then how do you look at a, uh, a a black and Indian woman as our vice president, and not say we, we fixed, fixed it. it. Yeah, we're not in colonial you know, times we've had, anymore. Right? We've yeah. had a black president, uh, two terms. So I mean, we're good. You know, I mean, so how and and others would uh, you know on on the right would look at uh, very often Ben Carson comes up as here's a guy who you know through he went he's black and yet he just worked real hard. And he worked hard and, and he learned and, and he made it and look at where he is now. I mean, he was even running for president. So there would be people who would say the system allows people through. So then couldn't it just be most people just are not working hard enough that minority. I mean, and that's that's what the, the I guess the the narrative is, right. you know, even if they're they're not aware that that's what they're saying. Yeah. And I'm not minorities just don't work hard enough. And I'm not smart enough to have a retort to that, that, that position quite yeah, honestly. Yeah. I just right. want to so, slap them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to, to the, to the point about, well, first of all, I mean, uh, many of us have been minoritized, you know, or marginalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, we'll probably still hear the term minority, uh, even though we're at a at a shifting point right now, where right. the demographics are changing, well, whites right. will be minority, right? Right, yeah. but yeah. but white people will never refer to themselves as minority, right. and that's that's part of the labeling, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, to the point about you know if we, we've had a black president, uh, all this must be over, and that's 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 I think one of the features of 
uh, a racialized social system is that um, if you work really hard, you will be successful because that's kind of how the history of, of that narrative has, has been. Um, and so that is evidence for, for people that hold that position. Um, that's evidence that anybody can make it. You know, and right. America really is this, this land of opportunity and, you know, everybody's got an equal shot, you know, and, and that's really, I mean, it almost does more, more harm than good for us to see that because then we actually think like we're progressing so, you right. know, so well, you know, yeah. um, and you know, that it's, I don't know, it, it's, it's such a, um, you know, it's such, it's such a, uh, the, the phenomenon of, of seeing successful people of color sometimes I think is it can be bad for for white people who don't have these uh, deeper conversations about how race operates you know because it's like see exactly that's 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 proof yeah um, and that's not necessarily the case because what what they'll all say is uh, I got here because I had a really strong support system I had people who opened doors for me you know uh, that was the case for me uh, I certainly wasn't the smartest in my class but uh, my advisor offered this opportunity, and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have even been here if it you know if it weren't for someone opening doors. Sure. So that's a, that's a question that I tend to to talk to people about you know in terms of their evaluations of folks who are successful. Yeah. You know who who were the who were the people that opened doors for them? Yeah. You know was it uh, was it a parent that got them in? Was it a, a a close friend that got them into that job? And who you know. Who you know, right? And and so our, our social networks um, are, are 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 like assets for us. Mm-hmm. And so if you live in, you know, um, you know, a place like Baltimore where your social network may not be as strong and you may not have ties into places that can get you in the door, well, then of course you're going to have fewer opportunities. Mm-hmm. Some of that is yeah. is you know that that's not something we think about in terms of social advancement, though. But would then people make the argument? that well that's a choice to live there and that's a choice to have the connections you have um now i'm not advocating that i i, I don't agree with that but but that that that's typically the criticism would say that in america the playing field is level um and so therefore if you are where you are it's because of your own personal choice or effort or lack thereof right yeah and and i think people forget that um again we can we can rewind here that Typically, you saw the majority of uh, the black population was in the South, right? And and it wasn't until they started moving up to the North. Uh, part of that was to escape racialized violence in the South by plantation owners. Uh, part of it was because they had better educational opportunities in the North. Part of it was because, um, you know, it, just, just uh, employment opportunities with more factories and dust industry opening up in those areas, right? Mm-hmm. And so you see this this... Out, uh, out migration from the south to the north, uh, primarily to the city areas, and a lot of the city areas had already been places where uh, immigrants uh, were were living, right? European immigrants, Italian, uh, Russian, and, and and so many others. And so, what you have is like this this um, this this influx of black people into working areas now uh, competing with jobs, uh, competing for jobs with white people, white immigrants. And so there goes the, the, the racial animus again. Oh, they're going to take our jobs. They're, they're after us. And so uh, one of the things that, that I've, I've seen personally in, in, in the literature is that you see these, these spikes in, in racial violence and, and, and lynchings 
in areas where more black people were coming into cities. Uh, and so one of the things that sociologists infer from that is like this influx of people of color uh, led to more racial violence. I mean, they weren't lynching themselves. So, um, you know, that's, that's something that then the, the, the housing market got on board and said, well, here's what we need to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, we want to keep people safe. And right now people do not want to live amongst each other. So we're going to keep them separated. Um, and, and so then the housing market, that's a system, that's yeah. a structural system um, that, that helped to keep people divided. So, yeah. um, you know, when you say, uh, well, they're the ones that live there, it's their choice. If they didn't want to live there, why don't they find somewhere else? You right. know, and, and the reality is that uh, this is probably back during the 60s, uh, during the time of deindustrialization. Um, a lot of these factories just started going down, right? Mm -hmm. And so jobs were getting shipped overseas and uh, or just, you know, uh, the industry was just crashing. And so a lot of folks had to look elsewhere for jobs. Meanwhile, this is at the same time that the civil rights movement is happening. And so you're seeing uh, black and white students uh, start to attend schools together. Right. So then you then you get into this, uh, this, this phase of history known as white flight, yeah. where... Right. Uh, white people basically were like, uh-uh, nope, we're not, she's not going to school with them and we're leaving. And so they, they, they tended to, to, to leave out to suburban areas, one, because they had the means to do so, but also because the jobs that were available in those areas were not really open to black and brown people. So gets who, who gets left behind right. in these uh, places now where their property tax bases are just going down, uh, the city does not maintain these certain areas and... You know, you've seen what happens. There's a lot of places in Baltimore that, you know, are now going under a new phase of gentrification. But before that, they were just kind of like, they just appeared to be unkept, you know. Um, wow. But a lot of that is because when people split, when white people split, they also took their money with them. So, so then who's left, right? And so as a result, we're still seeing the impact of that. You know, and, and I think so often we look, we, we can look back and go, oh, you know, the Jim Crow era, the civil rights, that was so long ago. Yeah, it wasn't. We probably have listeners who were alive during those times. Um, they're seeing that this is, this is not, this is very recent history. Um, and to assume that the impact of that and just to say, well, you know, we, we segregated, you know, we got rid of that um, and we got rid of the Jim Crow laws and now everybody equal footing. We're all good to go. Why is it so hard for I honestly white people? Because, I mean, that's kind of a lot of the circles that we travel in. Why is it so difficult for them to see that there is that system still in place or that we are suffering the impacts of what was clearly the stuff you just described unjust and evil. Why is it so hard to kind of still accept that that is something that we are having to deal with now? Well, it's, it's hard for me to speak to that um, as a Brown person, you know, yeah, but, but sure. I imagine that some white people and this, you know, I'm basing part of this off of what I've heard uh, folks say that I've, that I've worked with, you know, um, there's, there's a certain level of guilt involved. Like if that's true, what does that mean for me? Right. If it's not really about how hard I work, what if is my dad really the hero that I thought he was? Yeah. You know, um, you know, may, maybe, you know, especially when I think about um, now I'm, I'm going to rewind again to, to, to the GI Bill era. You know, um, when you think about how the, the military has been really held up as like this esteemed group, um, one of the things that we learn is that the GI Bill did not benefit people all the same. 
Sure. And so when you come out, you can go to college and, and buy a house that really gave you an advantage. But uh, that wasn't the case for, for, for many black veterans during that time, mm -hmm. especially with the GI Bill. You know, so, um, you know, I think people question what that might mean if what they had always thought was true is not true. Yeah. I don't know. Is that, am I, am I kind of in the ballpark? Think? I think so. I mean, and, and I will speak as a white man right now, uh, in the conversations that, that I have had, um, I think what we're, what you're addressing and where we're heading is the discussion of privilege, because very often if we were to start to say, you know, this is a system in place that elevates some and keeps some people down, um, then that means if I'm on team being elevated, like you said, maybe I haven't the, the, the story that I've been told about my life, about my, my parents' life, grandparents' life. Um, they didn't really have to overcome as much as we have been told. Uh, and that is a sense of privilege that if, that if I have been positioned, you talked about people opening doors for you, uh, people opening doors for, um, blacks and browns. I would assume that the flip side of that is that just based on the system that tends to be driven and benefit white people, um, those doors are just sort of automatically opened. I've never had to consider altering my name uh, in order to be more accepted and, and have more doors open for me or just to go, you know, I don't want to have that door closed. And so this is where we're starting to talk about privilege. And that's something I have discovered white people really really don't like to talk about um i don't know you guys uh, i believe are white do you for, for me no? like i said Ed, what helps my simple tim mind is is that idea of a name really that a name on the top of a resume still means something in 2021 yeah. and i've actually heard people heartbreakingly tell me back then just don't name your son tyrone and i'm like that doesn't fix anything that doesn't yeah. fix anything so it, it would would I mean, we would desire a, uh, we desire, all of us desire a society where it's not the color of your skin, but it's actually the work that you would put in, that if a Tyrone and a Tim are going to work the same, that we would have the same opportunities to us, but that's not the way it is right now. And for me, um, that's, that's what helps my brain to figure it out. I've had, uh, when, when, um, you know, during the summer and the George Floyd stuff had a conversation with, as you mentioned, people that have been through the civil rights era a grandmother who's a part of our church who was a, in the midst of all that. I just listened, you know, on the phone, mm -hmm. listened to her and she was beside herself that she needed to now have the, well, not needed now, but was still needing to have the same conversation with her grandson that her, um, that, that her grandparents had with her and her, you know, siblings back during the civil, uh, civil rights era that basically she needed to before her grandson went out at night just to you know go run around the block to get some exercise she had to say ah, do you really want to do that with the hood up over your head do you really is that something that you really want to do because there was the apprehension of if my black grandson goes out and runs around the block with a hoodie up that he's going to be seen differently and and listening to that it was very easy for me to say i've never had to think that in my life right right right, right. ever well, let, me, let me let me touch on something that you said uh before um, about the name. Yeah, please. Um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind too, and you, you hear this too, I hope the church is also having this conversation about diversifying uh, your workforce, mm -hmm. you know, to have representation. Mm -hmm. So imagine then if you have 
uh, a black employer on the other end looking at applications, uh, would she or he um, think, you know, think differently about the names coming across the desk? Mm. So to your point, um, my assumption is that you were talking about a white employer looking at those applications and going, mm, right. But if it were a black employer, imagine how it'd be like, there's nothing, nothing about this name bothers me. You know, I've heard this name sure. before, you know what I mean? And so those are some of the things that I think, you know, uh, yes, we experience those types of, of, um, uh, acts of discrimination, but one of the ways that we can address those is making sure that we have representation in the positions of power. Uh, so in this case, the pe- the person who makes the decision to hire, uh, if they have an experience or a familiarity with that name, or with the language that this person speaks, mm-hmm. then it, it, it almost puts them at an advantage, right? Because now they're thinking, huh, in order for us to continue growing this uh, uh, racial diversity, we need to bring in more people of color. Who's more likely to do that, you know? Um, and, and so j- just to that point, like uh, you had assumed that there w- it was a white employer, but I think that's one of the things that we have to think about um, is putting people of color in the positions where they make the decisions. Okay. And so, and I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah. All right. But let me, let me, let me for the, for the conversation. Uh, Cause some people will listen to that. I know, exactly what, what, I know you exactly just said. what you're about to say. Cause I was about to say it too. Yeah. And say yeah. exactly what you just said and said, okay, diversity. Wonderful. We love diversity. But what you're describing is the possibility of giving a Tyrone a job uh-huh. over a Timothy just for diversity just for diversity and so then now we get into the politicized you know uh, affirmative action and all that kind of stuff yeah what's your position on that well i mean uh the the first thing that comes to mind is uh ira katz nelson's book called when affirmative action was white Mm. and Mm -hmm. basically what he talks about there is how the new deal under fdr was certainly uh, uh you know um more uh, white people were, were preferenced by that deal mm. uh, because in that moment uh, the people who did not benefit from that deal were some uh, domestic workers um, some people who worked in agricultural areas um, basically kind of like the, the the lower wage earning jobs and so everybody else got a leg up after the Great Depression mm. um, but only people in those jobs which just happened to be occupied by 80% uh, black people um, didn't and so um, affirmative action has always been the kind of thing that preferenced white people. And it only really became a, an issue, I think, you know, this is not to sound nerdy, but um, w- with the Baki case, uh, look into the Baki case. Uh, Baki was a Spell it. B-A-K-K-E, okay. um, was a white man who was denied admission to UC Regents Law School. And his argument was, I would have gotten in if, you know, you didn't have this stupid racial quota thing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out that he had been rejected from <laughs> law school, <laughs> uh, other schools, uh, you know. And, and he was actually, I mean, it was, it was legit. But um, at that point, they said, no, 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 we need to be intentional about how we are making decisions uh, across racial lines. And so his argument was that he would have gotten in if it weren't for this affirmative action case. And so we're still seeing that. Uh, I think the the main point behind that is that um, affirmative action, a politicized uh, term, right, is something that really is is about being intentional about growing our our, our level of diversity, the the knowledge that the that our teams bring, 
And, um, you know, so if you think about it as a political issue, certainly it's like, oh, well, you're favoring them over us, you know. But even in that argument, that bothers me because, you know, are you saying you don't want to you you want to continue to be favored and not give other folks a chance? Yeah, I don't know. You know, and so. Uh, well, but that's but that's the their idea of equal play that if if no one is given preferential treatment, and I guess this right. is where the ignorance of systemic racism takes place, because if you say. If your belief is playing field is level, Tyrone so and Timothy are equal. Equal, equal. Right. And so they get in on merit only. In fact, just take the names off. Let's just don't even look at the names. Let's just look at the merit and decide from there. Then those people would say what you're prescribing and or ex- describing um, is racism because it's preferential treatment over of one race over another. Um, now, I mean, I, there's certainly ways to kind of push back and talk about that. But it is that whole thing that if racism is a power system, because I think so many people think of it as um, intentional individual acts of I'm being racist, I'm being prejudiced towards you, and I'm saying nasty things or I'm calling you names, that that's what racism is Sure. versus the actual structure that's in place to keep some people up and some people down. And then... The idea that if I have to uh, or if I'm giving preferential treatment to one race and race plays a part in that, whichever race it is, that's racism. Yeah. And so that's I think that. So help me out with the term here. So can the minority can the, the can the minority race, the, the 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 below race, if you will. Right. All right. So in other words, can a black person be racist? That's there's the question. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a good question. Um, if you if if you understand racism as a um a a power relationship Uh, where one group dominates another um then i would say no because you can't be in a in a a a subordinate position um and 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 hold power in the same way that a white person would so think about uh the same how the same dynamics would work between a man and a woman um can a woman be misogynist you know can can a woman go around and does the, does a woman hold the same type of power that a man does in society and yeah. enough to oppress other women? And the answer is no. They so, they just it's just not it's not that way. So you're helping me. So you're helping me understand at least the the terms. You're defining some things here for me because we're defining racism as you mentioned, Jeff, as a power, as a structure, as a inequality of up and down, haves and have nots, not a personal discrimination. Exactly. All right, because because somebody who would say, well, a black person can be racist, which you said in your your position is no, because it's a power structure. Like, let's go back to that thought of uh, a a black employer who's got a, a you know a bunch of different things, and if that black employer says, I, I'm go, I want I want the Tyrone, not the Timothy. Um, some people would say, well, that's racist because they pick black over white, but you're saying that's just discrimination, which is different possibly than racism. Right. Help yeah. me out. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm exactly. trying to process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you're exactly right. The, the way that I understand this is really like um, like a binary. And, and you know, uh, people I'm going to I'm going to throw Marxist name in here for Watch just out. a second. I know Watch people out. are just like <laughs> the lights are going to shut off and all the power is going to go down. Um, but as an analytic tool, what what Marxism brings is the uh, the opportunity to see how power structures work. Uh, against classes. So that was strictly class-based, right? Um, Rich versus poor. Yeah. All right. So 
uh, everything that happens in society through that relationship, that is capitalism, is what, what, what he was um, analyzing. Um, poor people are always going to be fighting for better wages, uh, fighting for better working conditions, um, that is to improve their, their, their life outcomes, right? Whereas the dominant class or the, the rich business owners are always going to be trying to pay as little as they can. They're mm-hmm. going to look at these types of conflicts that boil up in the working class and they're going to call that uh, complaining and, you know, you don't know how good you have it. And, you know, if you don't like it, we'll just yeah. find somebody else because there are plenty of people out of work. So that that same type of relationship works on the racial front, too. If you consider white being the dominant class and people of color being like the subordinate class. Right. And so all the conflicts that we see in society are going to be either to maintain white dominance or to 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 disrupt white dominance. And so. If Tyrone wants to hire Tyrone and not Tim, mm-hmm. um, Tyrone and this black employer are still functioning from the same racial subordinate class mm. in society. And therefore, it doesn't have the same sting that it would be if Tim was just like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going to or oh, the white employer. I'm going to go with Tim, you know, yeah. um, because, you know, that doesn't do anything to change the dynamics of, of the, the, the racial conflict that we see. Okay. So that I, helps. I read a, a, a tweet and we talked about it, I guess at Christmas, um, read a thread as somebody was kind of explaining racism and, and, and the idea of preferential treatment and talking about, let's, let's imagine that you are in an academic setting, that you're in a class, you know, 50% white, 50% black. And the professor, white guy, um, just decides that I'm going to give preferential treatment to the white kids, that I'm going to give them the syllabus. I'm going to give them the textbooks. I'm going to give them the, uh, the reviews. I'm going to withhold all of that from the, the black students. And then that guy goes and has a conversion experience, fun, discovers that Jesus loves everybody and that uh, everyone is made in the image of God. And he repents and he says, you know what, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to change my ways. And then the next day you go into class and everybody's there and he goes to all the black students, here are the syllabus, here are the textbooks, here are all of the curriculum that you need in order to succeed, but it's three days to the end of the class. And at that point you're going that, yes, you can say we are on equal footing now, but some people have already had the advantage of going through and being and and having the grades Um, that, that you can't just do that and then say, we're all equal now, um, that there's still a disparity and there's still uh, a difference. I know one of the, where we have seen this of late and it, and it kind of resurfaces every couple of years, unfortunately, uh, but it resurfaced a lot and, and had a lot of conversations over this past summer, this idea of black lives matter. And, and we're going to, so for our purposes, we're not going to discuss the actual group because it seems like I, I want to be clear on that because it seems like so many people, the organization, the organization, like they can't just divorce the statement from the group. Um, and, and I, I mean, firmly, I believe that, that people use the group and the criticisms. I mean, they're valid criticisms of it, but there are criticisms of that group that they then apply to just the statement. And like, I will never say this statement right. to affirm one race over another and, and, and I'm going to apply the group to it. And like, we're not doing that. We're not discussing the group. We're just talking about the concept of making the statement black lives matter. Tim and I have both said that multiple times from the pulpit and just about every time uh, we take heat for it. Uh, people don't seem to like that. And because their criticism of it, the white person will say 
that's a racist statement because what you're saying is, or, or the better way they'll say it is, um, I'm fine with saying black lives matter. So long as you also say, just like my life matters. Um, and that the, the, there's a need to say, I can't, I cannot express support, um, and, and affirm one race over another because that's racist, which is, it's kind of like inceptions. Like it's racism upon racism, upon right. racism, which go <laughs> no, it's like, you just don't like the idea of saying to someone else, your life has value because you think in a power structure, that means mine has less. Yeah. And so well, how do we, how do we address that? Because, you know, just a statement, black lives matter. It sh- doesn't need to be qualified. I mean, that, that should not be for a Christian. That should not be a hard thing to say. Yeah. Well, well let me, let me jump in and just say that I, I think a lot of what I'm hearing is, is around this issue of consciousness raising. Sure. Um, or sometimes you hear people say woke, right? So yeah, well, we're well, going to get that for a second, but yeah, let's do it. You know, it, that's just this idea that I've come to a realization that the way that I've always viewed the world may not be the only way that the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the point earlier, like maybe all the advantages that, that we have are, are, are blessings, right? <laughs> um, were it came from something else other than our own merit. That's mm-hmm. kind of like what I think of when I think about woke. It's this development of critical consciousness. Uh, consciousness being, you know, an awareness. Critical meaning I'm pushing against the way that people have taught me to understand these things. Yeah. So a critical consciousness is is, is vital to that um, status of, of being woke. And so um, for folks to, the other thing is um, we don't develop those in a vacuum. And so when we think about how our consciousness uh, are developed, those are basically inputs that other people have, have fed into us, mm. uh, things that we have read. And so if we only have access to one particular narrative, then we're going to always share that type of consciousness that, that the storyteller has. Mm. Or if we're only given certain types of books to read, then that means our consciousness is built on a single uh, form of knowledge, right? But the minute we meet somebody new and they go, oh, wow, that's, I never thought about it like that. Or, or check out this book. I want you to read this book. Oh, wow. That really opened my eyes. You know, mm-hmm. now you're moving into a more critical phase where you understand the wide range of um, sense making um, and, and consciousness development. So that's how I've, I've thought about the, the Black Lives Matter movement is the people who are pushing against it are also people who have only heard one narrative read the same materials Mm -hmm. and, and share the same level of consciousness that everybody in their echo chamber has, you know? And so that's the real, that's the real challenge is like, how do we get folks to think outside of that, uh, that frame to understand the salience of the movement, the organization, you know, uh, you know, and, and just several different areas of, of, uh, um, just knowing, you know, and I would say Christians aren't good at reading outside of their tradition. Yeah. Um, and I'll let you guys discuss woke because that's a that's a term it's, that's been stolen. And yeah, that's on our notes to talk it's, about. It's, <laughs> it's been stolen. And I, in my opinion, people shut their ears down as soon as they hear the word. And so that I, I so left and right, white and black all have triggers. And so I do my best to make sure I don't pull triggers so that we can have a constructive conversation. But I, I believe we need to talk about it because there's nobody in here that's going to be offended by it. But um, and so 
I believe just pastorally, Christians are not good at reading outside of their traditions, not good at solidifying their faith by reading outside views. Um, we are, uh, um, we're in very many ways, Christians can be scared. Mm-hmm. Um, scared that an, another idea will then change their mind. And quite honestly, we, we our life is built on the rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we believe in Christ and Christ alone um, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But um, I, I, there's way too many Christians that I, I meet who, uh, and, and I'm not a scholar, right? But I'll still read other worldviews and other thought processes because, quite honestly, it solidifies my faith. Faith, right, it doesn't exactly. hurt it. Yeah. Um, but some of it, we're scared to send our kids off to college because they're going to get other worldview. And quite to the and one of the reasons why kids run away from the Lord when they're in college is because we haven't exposed them to other worldviews right. while they're here in high school. We haven't solidified their faith. And kids have no idea that there's other ways to look at the world outside of just our little, you know, kind of bubble. And they go to college and they go, oh, wow, that, wow. And then they start to say, well, how come nobody told me this? And they, they, they delegitimize their faith unnecessarily. Right. They think that it, it, it null and voids what they understand to be, to, to believe in Jesus. And so I, you know, I, that's, that's one of my pet peeves. Well, I, Certainly about the church is I tell people, listen, when, when people uh, say, what should I read? I'm like, read something old and read something new. Don't just spend all your time in old, you know, modern scholar yeah. uh, theology. Read something old, read something new. And then go read what the Mormons believe. Then go read and, you know, and study about Muslims, uh, study about other faiths. And if it, if, if it carries you away, you know, if it, if it tears down your belief in Jesus, then I would suggest that you didn't quite believe in the first place. Yeah. Well, and I, I think too the part of the other reason that uh, that kids walk away from the faith is because when they start to experience um, a world outside of their own worldview and come to understand that there are things that are happening and things that they are learning that are in conflict with the things they have been told, but not in conflict with things that are in Scripture, then what happens is those kids go, "Well, wait a second my parents are hypocrites because you know here Jesus is saying this but my church tradition has been this I don't see the two aligning I they're incompatible so I will walk away Um, I will walk away to the thing that makes sense and I think the thing that makes sense is when you look at scripture is that Jesus calls uh, for racial reconciliation that there was racism that we saw throughout the gospel I mean throughout the whole Bible but I mean even the gospels Jesus was confronting it and dealing with it and and that's not something that we hear a lot I mean a- again a- you know coming from a white tradition it is equal footing in America everything if you work hard you can achieve and that's it um, and and we don't really challenge that we don't because I mean that makes sense and and so then we go and we work and then the doors that are open we don't realize the doors were already open for us when we got there and we just did some work and we've achieved and then when another storyteller comes in and says yeah those doors are not open to everyone because of this and this and historically we can trace that back to this as you've done today we've we go here 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 and we can see why there is an imbalance and why there is a structure that doesn't benefit everyone then all of a sudden as the there is again dissonance going I hear what you're saying but I know what I've experienced and I'm going to go with my experience because that's the thing that makes sense so I want to talk about 
that uh, that concept of being woke, because um, in a couple of weeks at, at church, we're having all of our elders lead like an online Zoom Bible study once a week. And I went to Tim and I said, hey, I have an idea uh, of maybe going the route of doing a series on racial reconciliation, working through just taking a book written by a black author dealing with um, racism and how we can kind of confront that as a church. And he, to Tim's credit, he was fully on board. He was like, no, you need to do a race one. And, but your, your admonition was whatever you do. He said, I don't care what book you, you read through, um, you know, looking at a couple. And I told him that we were reading through Eric Mason's, uh, woke church. And I kind of laughingly said, yeah, I may do woke church instead of this. And he said, I don't care what book you do. He said, but don't promote it. Don't use the word woke in there at all, because that'll get people to go. This is liberal propaganda. This is just an, you know, and, but I love what you're talking about. Let's kind of trace that, that idea of wokeness of having, um, your conscience awakened to, to different stories. Um, how do we do that with people who have said, this is what I believe is true. And I will not confront that. I don't feel a need to confront that. You know, how do you, how do you engage with people on the, you know, do you just write them off and say, well, no work can be done here. What are some tactics we can do to say, guys, look around, like your story is not the only one that's being told. Like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you engage people who say, this is what the story is. Um, and I don't really want to engage and challenge that. Yeah. Well, yeah. There, I mean, I wish I could say there was a way. Uh, you know, is there any way, <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. Is there yeah. any way to do that? Because well, I mean, the, 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 some, you know, what comes to mind for me is, you know, when you, when you begin with a place of purpose, um, that's, that's, that's a great place to start. So, um, the purpose might be our goal in enhancing what we understand about the gospel, about our relationships with people, um, you know, is, is is pretty is pretty narrow and so you know we're trying to to grow that understanding what what do we need to grow that understanding for well we know that the demographics are changing we know that people uh experience life in, in so many different ways and if we're really trying to do what god has called us to do and that is preach the gospel to the end of the earth wouldn't it be important for us to know what you know, the end of the earth looks like, Yeah, <laughs> we know what the end of the block looks like because right. all y'all live right around here. Right. right. Um, but wouldn't it be great to understand how we could be, uh, more welcoming to people who, who know and drive by this church all the time, but are afraid to come in because they don't really know if they're going to be welcome here. Mm. And the reality is that's been the church's, um, uh, kind of, I'm not gonna say position officially, but why then would a black church need to emerge? if the white church was good enough, you sure. know? Uh, and so some people have not felt safe in these spaces. Um, and so if, if, if the purpose is to grow our ministry, um, to be more inclusive and, and to build a congregation that would represent what heaven would look like, then there's some work that we need to do on our part. Mm. And the other interesting thing is like, if people say no to that, then what does that mean? You know, <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah. You know, how would we feel if, if Jesus was like, okay, yeah, you're good. You're not good. You know what I mean? Like, we're, yeah. are we making a, a assessments on other people and why we don't need to understand their experiences? Mm. Um, you know, that that's, I don't know how to grapple with that. And there are going to be some people that, that do have that position. Um, but that speaks volumes sure. 
you know, it's uh, hard for me who has a pulpit, you know, ministry to tell people, listen, be quick to listen, slow to speak, because I'm, it, I mean, it's kind of my job to be quick to speak sometimes, but in, in this, what you're talking about is should be a principle of the believer from James, uh, the epistle, uh, we should, we should be people who listen. We mm-hmm. should just, I mean, just across the board, we should be people who are willing to listen to the experience and the stories of other people and not listen just to listen, but to li- to actually ingest what they're saying. Even if we don't have a response immediately, go home, you know, be spiritual and pray about it, sleep on it, and, you know, then come back and engage in that conversation with that person. Um, and quite honestly, we need to make sure we listen to people who have different experiences than us. You've mentioned echo chambers. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're tribal people in very many ways, and so we – we we just like to listen to the you know the stories around the campfire of the people who have the same as us, um, because listening to other people's stories from the other side of the track, quite honestly, as I mentioned in the beginning, it makes us uncomfortable. These yeah. are you know these are uncomfortable conversations. Well, they're uncomfortable because I think ultimately, as more stories are coming out, as we have. Um, just seen more story. I mean, in the age of technology, we can hear from more people. We can see more experiences. Mm-hmm. It's, it used to be easy to just write stuff off as, Oh, I didn't hear about that. Or I didn't see that. But when you start to see the George Floyd experiences, you know, and, and, uh, Breonna Taylor and, and the things that you can't ignore that. And then when you start to see the injustice as a Christian, I understand go, it, it's really becomes challenging to uh, as I've seen white people try to do, it's been really challenging to um, say those stories aren't real and aren't true. Because that's the easy and clean thing to do to right. just turn it off. And everything, Adam, that you've been mentioning today, I'm, I'm thankful that you haven't presented an easy, clean solution. No, because there is none. The world is chaotic and it's messy, and this is so overly complicated. But instead of as a, as a believer, instead of running away from that or bubbling up, as we mentioned in the beginning, like it's it's our job to invest in with mm-hmm. the gospel and say, yeah, it's complicated. It's yeah. all very complicated, but we're willing to invest in the mess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, I, I have to say, you know, um, as I as I continue my own journey in, in trying to understand people's experiences and how mm-hmm. folks come together. Um, I'm also growing in my faith as well, because mm-hmm. a lot of it, ha- you know, I, t- I told um a teacher one time, I said, let me think about how to put this. I said, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a reference. Uh, I'm a, I'm a believer in Christ. And for us, when you give your life to Christ and you get saved, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they all know, but I'm, you know, I don't want to assume, you know, because I may not all be on board. Right. I said, when you get saved, the idea is you have recognized that until that moment you have been living for yourself and you know, you've been separated from God. And so you're making a commitment to God to walk right. Uh, that doesn't mean you'll never sin again. Um, but it means that you have someone on your side to kind of bring you back to this path. And I said, that's what this work is really about Mm. is you're not going to get it right all the time, but let us shift our path to something that's a little bit more about the collective instead of just individualism and, and dividing ourselves. Um, and so, you know, if you make a mistake, I'm here, right? That's what yeah. I tell them. If you make a mistake, I'm here. Um, but this is never about shaming people for their, um, you know, for their lack of coming on on board and sure. believing this. You know, sure. people. That's one. That's one great thing about free will, right? Is that you can't force people into heaven, and you can't force <laughs> people to talk about Black Lives Matter. You know, yeah. um, and and so we have to we have to remember that we only have so much authority as people. 
But if our main job is to to bring folks together for the glory of God, there is extra work that some of us need to do. And mm-hmm. that's really what the work is all about. You yeah. know, I don't know, Tim, if you feel the same way. I know you just talked about you can't, um, as Christians, can't make people uh, do stuff. And I agree with that. I think there's a, an interesting challenge for pastors who your job, our job, is to shepherd people through these things. Um, we can't make people listen, but it's really, really frustrating uh, when you try to communicate what you believe God is telling us to do and they have immediate justifications as to why they won't do that or they have answers that you know, just like I mean I thought was almost funny I mean it's not funny but it was it was comical when you were talking about um, you know Tyrone versus Tim and looking at the resumes and Tim started talking he asked the exact question that I was going to ask because we've had those conversations with people that we know as soon as you start to raise this, well then here's the, you know, it's like they have a file of criticisms on right. all of these things to sort of protect. I, I don't know. I'm forgive me if this is wrong word to say, but their lack of wokeness, but their, their lack of, the inverse would be to, to protect white supremacy or to protect a racialized social structure right. by, by, by using those tools, those, those linguistic tools, they're upholding that status quo. Right. You know? And that, and that's what I'm talking. Yeah. I mean, so how would I say that then, Tim? Because like, I, I don't know to me if it's, if I, I don't know how to say it, but all I know is I just in, because again, uh, and uh, when, when we try to shepherd people through, some people have immediate reactions and that's why I've found that, you know, tweeting something out or pastorally like Facebook or, or pulpit, it's really hard to get that out there because they immediately throw up a wall yeah. and you can't actually, and then they're, they're not going to have then a conversation with you. But then if, if, when we have these kind of roundtable things, uh, you're able to like I, you're able to actually kind of get around the terminology that they've already defined in their head, right. and you're able to. And so, like I said, I, I don't have any problem with using the word woke. I don't. I, I don't yeah. have an issue with it. No, 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 no. But to come I, back I to it, I know like to use that and say, hey, we're going to have a series called Woke Church. Like, yeah. you you are immediately going to take your. Uh, your possibility of people signing up for it and you're going to go down to yeah. that. No, and I get that. I, I guess like just in this conversation, I don't know another way to say that. I get but, it. But to, then to say but the true definition of wokeness, not the the definition that has been applied that they just immediately push back on. We've talked about some of the, the words and the terms that have been wrongly defined or carry um, just a a stigma of, well, of nastiness. Could, could you, you know, uh, I'm assuming you've read the Bible a little bit, a little, um, uh, I mean, what, what, how, what kind of links would you say the Bible, um, makes to let's not call it wokeness, but, um, the light and seeing and, and, you know, th- those types of things. That's how I understand wokeness is like, right. There's a sense of, of knowing that has occurred as a result of, you know, uh, coming to understand who he is, you know, and so in that sense, I mean, you call it what you want, but yeah. what we need to get to is, you know, a, a, a more collective understanding. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just changing the word like, no, no, we're not going to use woke. We're going to use awake, you know, that, that we are not and, and just are not even awake, but aware, you know, that we are aware of the struggles of other people. Yeah, and I don't that. feel like I don't feel like we've done maybe aware church. That's what you know, that we are. And, and I guess that's what we are trying to say when we talk about woke is that having. Uh, an awareness that there are people out there who have different experiences than us um, listen. and and to listen to them listen and 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 don't just listen um to say that I listened but listen for the purpose of saying I'm going to challenge what I have set up and I have uh just 
signed on to that I have been told, you know, that, that, that maybe there's something I can learn here and expand and especially worldview. Right. And especially, and, and so you brought up, you know, kind of a CRT Marxist kind of a thing that you had going on. And I know we're going to be talking about that a little bit in the coming podcast, especially with the Southern Baptist relationship with CRT. Um, but quite honestly, take, take the small step, mm-hmm. listen to a fellow believer who has a different cultural background than you. You don't right. you don't like don't don't run yeah. out to Russia and try to ask you know Richard Marx that's going to be a joke. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ask you know don't like you don't have to go way out there and listen to some completely uh you know uh, a pagan you know marxist like worldview coming in which I think has has worth and when you're uh you know, when you're kind of listening just go right across the tracks and ask if you're white. Go ask a black believer who's not going to uh, who's not going to do anything that is going to take you away from Jesus. Not going to argue away from the cross. They're simply going to give you their background and uh, in, in their story, and that's the first step. But people take a look at CRT and Marxist, you know, analytical views, right. and they're like, "No, I'm not even going to take a step." Right, like that's right. a mile away, a mile right. oh, away. Yeah, yeah. And, and and think about how they came to know about that, right? Somebody the was news. there, yeah, to say if you hear anything about this, right. just right. turn and run the other way. Right, and I mean, I'll just say a bit about it if you don't mind. I don't want to. Please. Um, I mean, the 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 critical race theory movement has. I mean, I, I just I don't understand how it's become so problematic. Um, you know, the the only the only issue really I think is that it it infers that racism in the U.S. is a permanent structure. And so, um, you know, right off the bat, I guess that's that's part of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. But it's really just been used as an analytic tool to study different phenomena in in in, in society, mm-hmm. um, and that's not really new because prior to the CRT movement, uh, that was born out of the critical legal studies movement, um, and, and and that was useful because it was a, it was able to 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 highlight how. Uh, policies and, and, and court cases and, and legal proceedings were were heavily racialized, like redlining, for example, yeah. right? Or um, you know, just I mean, any uh, any form of uh, racial segregation. Um, I'm thinking like Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, separate but equal. Uh, these are these are court cases that can be analyzed through a racialized lens. Another thing that I think I, I've, I've found valuable in that particular framework is that it speaks to the importance of counter narratives and counter narratives are those other people's stories that we've been trying to press folks to, to, to listen to and understand um, and add to your own body of knowledge. You know, so yeah. there's an idea, right, a meta narrative that exists that you know, one group of people do this because of this and that's why this happens. That's like a meta narrative, yeah. right? It's typically uh, driven by a white dominant narrative, um, but the counter narrative would suggest that that particular group tells the story from a, a, a different viewpoint, and, and typically considers the other conditions around that dr- drove some of the decisions that they made. So, um, uh, Cobra Kai, Josie, right? This was the first time uh, in the maybe the first or second season where I ever thought about. Um, Danny as a bad guy, right? When Johnny was talking about like, well, he's the one who poured water on my head and he's the one who did this to me and he's the one who did And I'm like, no, no, Danny was always the good guy. But (laughs) in that moment, I was like, he was kind of a jerk. 
you know, and that's like a counter narrative, right? It just allows us to look at the same situation from somebody else's perspective. Um, and, and then I can make a, a fuller judgment of that particular scenario now having two narrators on that topic. Yeah. You know? Analysis is not a skill that 2021 society has very well. We just simply are spoon-fed uh, how we're supposed to believe about things. Yeah. And so I think if I can kind of wrap up and, and, and summarize, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, um, but what we're trying to say here on this first and you know episode in our race conversations is that the world might be bigger than uh, than you have experienced. The world, people may be having stories that you are unfamiliar with, and um, and don't be afraid to pursue that and to understand that that if the world is bigger, then maybe there's some things going on that we have not fully understood or even realized. Um, and our desire is to go, we believe that that's happening. Um, I mean, not we believe that's happening. I mean, look around, it's happening. I mean, you know, historically, we can see that it has happened. Um, and we see the impact of that still going on today. Uh, you can choose to ignore it. Um, and uh, many people have. And we're not at that place right now. And so we're trying to say, let's have an awareness of the struggles of others, uh, the realities of systemic racism, because if we don't have that, if we don't understand that and, and embrace the reality of it, um, then we're not going to push to change it because one of two things, I mean, one of the, in order for that to be torn down, in order for racism to be disrupted, somebody has to disrupt it. And it's either going to be the people who are a part of the system who go, this is not correct and we need to correct it. Or it's going to be the people who are the uh, minority class that is trying to push marginalized. Back and say, you can say yeah, margin, marginalized. Thank marginalized, you. Yeah. I couldn't think of what to say, but the marginalized class um, that is going to push back and try to disrupt it. And I think we have seen some of that happening again of late of, of the marginalized pushing back and, and crying out to say, this needs to be fixed. Um, the funny thing is, as I mentioned, as we read through the book and I mentioned, I preached a few uh, weeks back, months back, is that in society now, Christians, biblical Christianity is now in the margins. It used to be yeah. a cultural norm. Now we're in the margins. And so now Christians are very quick to say the society is rigged, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like yeah, there yeah, is yeah, problems yeah. in our system and yeah. we're over here in the margins, the people who couldn't see it before. But the but there's, those same people are still a little bit slow to look at that from a racial standpoint, not just a religious standpoint right. and say, wait a minute. Uh, now like there are people in the margins like we're quick to say it from a religious standpoint yeah like we now don't have the power anymore we can't move yeah. society as we once did and I, I don't understand why we can do it in a religious way but not a racial way it's just it's it's I don't know hopefully we'll get there well and it's been interesting to watch people uh, freak out over the presumed um, lack of you know their first amendment right that, that as soon as all of a sudden they have to you know there is a power structure telling them, hey, you can't do this or you can't do this. Then all of a sudden it is we need to go to war over this. Right. Um, and it's going, yeah, welcome. Welcome to the party. There have been many communities who have been having to deal with a lot of these kind of uh, injustices and things. Um, I want to Adam, you had requested. So when we put all this together, we kind of said, listen, we're not really going to do things the way we normally do on this podcast. We're going to not do the confession. We're not going to do the, um, the great Christian people. And then you were kind of pushing back on that. Go, no, I, I think we need to do that to kind of, to kind of bring it out. So, you know, all right, so we'll, we'll do that. Um, 
I put this down. I said, if, if racial reconciliation is necessary and we have been called by God to do this, um, then if we aren't participating in it, then one of two things, either we have unintentionally been blind to the realities of what's happening, or we have intentionally been ignoring it for reasons that we can't defend. And so either way, uh, we need to be grieved and even shamed at times over our lack of attention, awareness, and then our action. Um, that to me is just, I guess, speaking on behalf of the, the three white guys in the room, um, that's really kind of our heart here is to understand that maybe we haven't been paying as much of attention as we need to. I know we have kind of confessed those things um, previously, or once we did come into an awareness of it, we haven't been as proactive as we need to. And so this is kind of one of our first steps. It's not the, the complete thing, but it is a step forward in us trying to say, um, how can we help bring about racial reconciliation in our community, in our lives, and things like that. You had posed a question that we've, uh, I, I know I've been kind of contemplating. You had posed it prior to uh, us coming to um, record today, and I, I want to kind of use it as my confession and Jeff as yours as well. Uh, your, what you wanted us to consider was when did we become aware, right? Mm -hmm. When did we become aware to uh, you know, a system of racist inequality and all that kind of different things, and I don't even know if I'm structuring that correctly uh my confession is i don't know the answer to that question hmm. so i can't say like there it for me and i knew for some of the world like in 2020 it was george floyd like that was the you know that was a eureka moment uh for me that wasn't it you know i can go back to uh freddie gray in baltimore you know five years ago that wasn't it uh, I, I feel like I have not had a eureka moment when it comes to understanding that. Now, that doesn't mean when I look back, I feel like I, I, I know it and I believe it and I agree with a broken system. Um, but I think I have I've had kind of like a progressive change. I feel like I've 2020 and, and George Floyd had caused me to look back, caused me to uh, and, and all of us really, all society caused me to say, okay, what do I see? And I've, I, in that moment in the summer of 2020, kind of looked back and realized that I was like, I, I agree with the systemic racism understanding, but I can't find that moment where I changed. And it's funny because pastorally different church traditions say you need to have that pray the prayer moment as you became a Christian, right? There needs to be that moment where you surrendered. But as a pastor, I see that's the case in some people's lives, but in other people's lives, they, they, they can just kind of turn around and realize my heart is completely changed. I'm completely in a different direction. I'm serving the Lord. I'm chasing after the Lord. And I don't know when it was that I gave my life to the Lord, but it was back there somewhere. Right. And I feel like that's kind of me. And I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, I don't know if there's any advantages or disadvantages to that. Um, but I, I don't know that there's been anything that has truly shocked me. And I don't, and I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, I, I you know, I, when I look back, I can just, it's for some reason, and I've told the church this, I kind of in my life live with like an emotional rain slicker. I'm just, I'm not an empath. I'm not a really empathetic guy. Uh, I don't like rise and fall very much. Um, I just, I'm kind of like just this kind of chill guy. And, and I've, when, when I see the, the, as you mentioned, the George Floyd's and the Breonna Taylor's and the, mm -hmm. and all of the Freddie Grace and all this kind of stuff. I'm affected by it. I grieve it, but it's not surprising to me. It just doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, I'm like, I, it, there's almost a, well, that's just the way the world is. Um, 
and and that's and that's kind of confession for me. Like I feel it should break my heart more. It does break my. It does affect me. Uh, it, it but not as much as I feel that it should. Um, I don't know, and that's that's kind of a weird position. But yeah, go ahead, throw in. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it. One of the things that really, it, and I've known this, but I didn't think about it until right now. Uh, a, a really uh, strong confession, I would say, you know, for me, was when I was attending this, you know, private elite Catholic school in Austin. And I, I just I just remember being in the back of the pickup trucks, you know, how people used to do at football games, you yeah. know, just kind of like roll up and, you know, and um, being with my probably majority white peers, one black kid uh, at that time and 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 just singing this racist country song. Mm. You might know it. Uh, I'm not going to sing it here. Okay. <laughs> but I remember. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take it from the top. Uh, I remember just being in that moment, you know, uh, and singing this and, and, and actually saying the N word in the song, you uh-huh. know, with my, my black friend right there and mm. all the white people there. And just like, they're just like cheering. And I was, I was so, I was so um, trying to fit into that group. Mm. That I was sitting here perpetuating this white supremacist way, you know, in a in country of, song. You were singing yeah, a, country a country song with the yeah. N word, not a rap song, right? Wow, exactly. Okay. Yeah, and um, overt. Yeah, exactly. And and I'll never forget that because I, years later, I thought, man, what else did I do? How, right, sure. how else did I engage in that type of behavior and sure. and make these folks think that it was okay because yeah. I was joining in? Yeah. And, you know, I tell that story sometimes because a lot of times people think like we've always just been this way. But the reality is because that is the status quo, we all operate from the, w- the way the system trains us to operate until we make a shift. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of the hope, you know, as we as we bring this, this work to people is, is, you know, there is a shift that that needs to happen. But that's mm-hmm. man, that's one of the, the greatest confessions ever. I was like, how could I have done that? What's yeah. wrong with me? You know, mm. I so my confession is. Um, I remember being in middle school and and uh, what is it like, what was the class? Not home ec, like the manly home ec. Um, shop. shop shop i guess i forget what it had some other name for it but i remember we were assigned to a, a large table like a workspace and it was me another another white dude and and a, and a black uh a black guy and i just remember that the other white guy um made so many jokes about the black guy at our table mm. who he would laugh at it and he would participate in it and it was such a weird moment for me to go so this guy's being incredibly racist, like throwing out some racial epithets and, and he's receiving them and kind of turning them around and, and make it. And I was like, I guess, I guess that's okay. I guess we've progressed because him <laughs> saying the things that yeah. he's saying and he's laughing at it and whatever. And it, it I, I wasn't aware at that time. I just was kind of like, this is strange. And I'm, I'm sure that I participated in it, you know, yeah. and, and then becoming, um, when I came on here as the, as one of my roles as a college pastor, we had uh, one black girl who was in the group. We had a, a pretty good size college group and, and it was like she would draw attention to her race because it was sort of awkward that we had 12 people in the room and mm. one of them was black and she would sort of joke about things. And then everybody else thought, Oh, that's safe to joke about. And they would pile on and I'd sit back and I'd be like, this just feels 
like something's not right about this. And I don't know what, it, you know, and, and I guess in that regard, it was a defense mechanism or it just felt like this is what, this is the role I have to play in this group is to kind of be the one that, but I remember when Freddie Gray, um, and, and, uh, Mike Brown, um, all of these stories came out and you had just joined the family. Um, and I remembered really, this is when black lives matter first, they, they started ringing that bell in 2013, I think. To the, and, uh, and I remember to me saying to my wife, like, you know, I don't have any issue saying black lives matter. What these people are saying is I feel ignored. I feel like I don't care and that I don't have value in this system. And as a Christian, my position should be, you absolutely do. And if me saying black lives matter makes you feel that, um, that you have been seen, that you are loved. I have, zero issue doing that. And I remember you talking uh, to me and Jen and just kind of sharing so much about of, of the experiences that you have seen and what you have seen in schools. And just again, and my whiteness attending school, I thought school looked like this. And you're like, uh, no, that people um, in, you know, they're, they're, they're black students in the cities who have to leave at like four in the morning to hop on a bunch of buses to go sit in a room full of 50 kids you know, and, and 20 tables, and this is the only meal they're going to have. And I'm going, that's not my experience. And, and that really challenged me to kind of go, there is, there is some disparity here. Um, I mean, and obviously we're all aware that there are racist individuals. And next week we're going to talk about how we still see that with, with our guests. Um, and, and we can always say, oh yeah, there are people out there who will do this and do this. But as a, as a whole, there's not a system that is set up this way. And to just kind of see that played out um, was, was really helpful to me. And so that's kind of the confession. I think as we become more aware, then it is supposed to lead towards action, and that's where we got to go. And so to wrap out, um, let's move into great Christian people. This is the time where we highlight uh, some people, some voices that we're listening to that we say, you know, follow these guys, listen to what they're saying, uh, because they will challenge and help you along this way. And so, Tim, you want to start us off? Great Christian people. I'm going to go yeah. back to John Newton, throw him up there. I'm sure he was a very imperfect individual, but he did some amazing things for sure uh, from the British side and the slave trade and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so throw him out there. But uh, a modern voice would be, and I know I sent you the video a few months back. Mm-hmm. I recommend everyone listen to the sermon by Tony Evans, pastor down in Dallas. Uh, it's just entitled a biblical response to race. And he is in John three with the woman at the well. And I think he handles it masterfully. And so I don't know if you can throw that link in the notes. I'll put that on there. Adam, go for it. I think, um, some, some of what's really helped me expand my own understanding is, uh, reading liberation theologians. Um, you know, so some that come to mind are James Cone. He wrote a book called the cross and the lynching tree. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Bonhoeffer is another one that, that I've been reading a lot lately. And then also, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, who was, um, probably the, the founder of liberation theology. And uh, just to kind of sum up that movement, it was, it was when the Catholic church had come out with, uh, the new doctrine that basically was saying that the church was not doing enough to fight poverty, mm. uh, in particular in Latin America. And what happened as a result of that was the Catholic Church began partnering with uh, Protestant churches and other denominations, which it had never done before. 
Uh, it also began partnering with atheist organizations and Marxist organizations. And what happened was they all came together to try to address issues of institutional violence, you know, namely poverty in, in this part of the world. And so what I really like about that is, is that has challenged me to think about how we can talk with folks across groups, whether that be across yeah. racial groups, um, you know, uh, uh, across faith groups, et cetera, right, about fighting a, a real issue that we care about. You know, in this sense, it's, it's about racism, right? Um, and so how, what, are, what are some ways that we can grow our understanding of other people that we share this community with so that we can do our part in trying to address issues of racism? So I would say folks should certainly look into some of those uh, authors and texts because, um, you know, it's, it's, they're all Christian based too. So, um, you know, think about reading outside of your genre, right? Yeah, like you sure. said earlier. To be, yeah. to be clear, you said liberation theologians, not liberal theologians. Liber- right. 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 Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah, I know exactly. some people just, you know, you're right. <laughs> ears got turned off. I'm yeah. not reading that. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and don't, <laughs> but, uh, no, but the again, idea, read outside of your tradition. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Like to the James Cone one, I'll say briefly that, the, the way that he juxtaposes the cross as a symbol of salvation and hope and also as, as a, a symbol of suffering for black people in the U.S. is just phenomenal. Mm. You know, you want to talk about suffering and healing in the same sentence. Mm. What a great uh, book to learn about, you know, mm. uh, those, those two uh, important topics. That's awesome. I think people need to stop only learning. They only read to be convinced as opposed to read right. to learn. Exactly. Read to learn. Yeah. All right. So this will surprise no one. My great Christian person today is in the room with us, Adon Alvarez. Hey, all right. I'm serious, man. Uh, Adon. Since we first started. Still said it wrong. I know, <laughs> Adon. Well, Adon. Uh, since we first started this podcast, we knew at some point we were going to have you on for something. You're too smart not to not to have on. Thank um, you. But I, I really am so grateful uh, for you. I'm grateful that you're part of the family. I'm, I'm super grateful for the way that you have your patience and your grace with me as I've kind of like, uh, like a blind person who is just like stumbling around a room, just like, I don't know, I want to get to the right place, but I'm just going to kind of walk all over and knock everything, um, off, you know, blindfolded, not a blind person, I didn't mean blind, but a blindfold person who's just sort of like, I'm trying to figure out my way and understanding of this. And you have uh, been there um, and you're more than gracious because pretty much every time we get together at a family event, I'm like, okay, can we talk about racism now and help me understand <laughs> right. this and help me? Um, and so I just, I, I'm super appreciative of you, just the work that you're doing um, in the world. It is good work. Uh, the world is better because of you and my world is better because of you. And so I'm really, I'm really grateful for you and the way that you challenge the way that you lovingly correct uh, because that needs to happen a lot. And so, Adam, we want to thank you so much for giving your time, allowing us to just pick your brain and uh, help us feel smarter. Um, this is hands down the longest podcast we've ever done. I don't know that we'll ever do another one this long, but I just feel so enriched by the conversation that has taken place. And guys who are following along, we hope that you do as well. If you haven't already done so, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GCPPod. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Email us at goodchristianpod at gmail.com. I'm sure some things were stirred up today. It would be really beneficial to all of us if we just continue to have these conversations. So next week, we continue our discussion on racial reconciliation as we welcome the GCP historian and biggest fan onto the podcast. 
We will move from the realities of systemic racism to individual expressions of it that we still see going on and will celebrate the beauty of a multicultural church. We're just getting started in our pursuit of racial reconciliation, but we move forward committing to being the church God has called us to be. And until then, what? Just say be good. Be good. listening to Good Christian People podcast. Today's episode was recorded on Monday, January 25th, 2021 by Jeff Higgins and Tim Byer, two pastors living in beautiful Glen Burnie, Maryland. If you'd like to hear more of our content, please check us out online at goodchristianpod.com or by following us on Twitter at, at @gcppod. blooper today. Instead, if you would like to engage more with today's subject matter, we would recommend that you check out The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, authored by Jamar Tisby, president and co-founder of The Witness, a black Christian collective and co-host of the podcast Pass the Mic. The Color of Compromise is available in paperback, digital, and audiobook from your favorite online, all-powerful retail conglomerate.